Well, welcome to Grace on Tap. Grace on Tap is a podcast dedicated to the history and the theology of the Lutheran Reformation, um, all over a nice cold beer. For the last few episodes and for the next several episodes, I've probably many, many episodes going forward, uh, we're, we're going to be looking at the, uh, the large catechism. We've been taking a leisurely stroll through the large catechism for, I think, the last three episodes. And uh, that, that has been just dedicated to the, uh, the preface, the, both the, the long preface and the short preface. Um, the, the, we spent a lot more time than we anticipated on, on the preface, but I think that was probably because it was so grounded in context, in Luther's context. That's where he was really talking a lot about what the things that he was dealing with at that time. At least that was sort of the way we took it. Uh, for this, for now that we're getting into the, uh, the, the Ten Commandments, Hopefully, we'll be able to move a little bit more quickly uh, because it's more timeless and, and we're, not, we're not so grounded in, in Luther's time. So, uh, but, but actually, we're still not out of the preface, are we? We're, we are not. We still have uh, baptism and the sacrament and then the final conclusion of the preface. Uh, but we will get that done today and also uh, complete the first commandment. So in baptism, Luther is extremely brief. He basically he just quotes from the Bible. He says, "Go ye and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Ghost. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned." And according to Luther, that's all you need to know about baptism for now. So we're we're done with baptism for the for the time being. That's right. And then for the sacrament, he just titles it of the sacrament. There's not a similar heading of the Lord's Supper. And there he quotes the words of institution. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take eat. This is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner, also, he took the cup. When he had supped, gave thanks, gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you for the remission of sins. This do as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. And these words are uh, in isolation from the rest of the canon of the Mass on purpose. For Luther, there had uh, been an awareness that many things had developed around these words to the point where these words had become hidden inside the Mass. And he uh, saw the simplicity of these words to communicate the promise of what God was doing in this meal, that Christ was giving his own body, his own blood for the forgiveness of our sins, and that all the other things that can bookend, bracket, and be parentheses around these, uh, strip that away, and what you have left is the words. And even now, sometimes when we'll look at the words of institution, uh, some pastors I know will just use the abbreviation, the verba. The words, um, because everything else is something else besides the words. And that's how kind of Luther describes it. Uh, paragraph 23 is the words of institution. That's all he has to say about the Lord's Supper. And then paragraphs 24 through 28, which are the conclusion, um, describe how these five parts of the entire Christian doctrine should be constantly treated and required of children, heard, recited word for word, and uh, not rely upon uh, just learning it and re- but uh, sharing in sermons as well, 
and then as they're learned, uh, then lay before also some psalms or hymns and uh, celebrate this time in the scriptures. Probably the the one point I wanted to quickly make, um, I, I thought it was sort of interesting that he calls this of the sacrament. Uh, because this is this period is not quite to the period where Luther has said that uh, that penance is not a sacrament. It, he's it's almost like you know by saying of the sacrament, uh, it's he seems to be leaning more toward toward this is this is the the you know he's not not having penance as as a, a second uh, or a third sacrament. It's, there were in some versions of the large catechism that were published during Luther's lifetime, a section on private confession and absolution. Uh, but then in the edition that was published for the Book of Concord in 1580, that section on confession and absolution wasn't included. Uh, Luther and Philip Melanchthon and others saw the sacraments largely as defined as God's uh, promise of the forgiveness of sins being delivered into this world through concrete means. And so in baptism, we've got the water, Lord's Supper, we've got the, the bread and the wine, and in confession and absolution, he would identify the voice and the relationship and community as that concrete means. And so um, I think, you know, there is this title of the sacrament, which kind of gives this um, presence to the Lord's Supper being the, the sacrament that the church celebrates on an ongoing, regular basis. But I I don't think we can quite read so much into there that he is dismissing confession and absolution yet. So so that finishes off the the preface. We're finally through the preface. So we and paragraph twenty eight says, therefore we shall now take up the above mentioned articles one by one in the plainest manner possible and say about them as much as is necessary. And that's what we're gonna do as well. We're gonna go through them one by one and try to do it in the plainest manner as possible and say only as much as necessary. So we have in the uh, question, and he, Luther goes back to his question and answer format, which it were, I, I think, as Lutherans, for those Lutherans who are listening, that is uh, very familiar in the small catechism. He uses a lot of the same context here. And, and, but for the large catechism, he, well, he has the three questions. Uh, he says, uh, what does this mean? What is to have a God? And what is God? So those those are the three questions that he's asking here, and and, and then you know, he the, answers it. He says a God means that from which we are to expect all good, and to which we are to take refuge in all distress. So that to have a God is nothing else than to trust and believe Him from the whole heart. As then he goes on to describe the confidence and faith of the heart alone. And there is this strong emphasis for him of identifying faith and trust as synonyms. Uh, And this is something that Luther introduces largely into the language of faith during his time period. And probably still sometime today, people will think of, uh, of, do you have enough faith? They'll think of knowledge. How much do you know about the Bible? Maybe people who know a lot about the Bible, we might presume they have a lot of faith, but really all they have is knowledge. Or we will look at someone who through their actions and words assent to the rituals of the church. But that's not really a measure of what trust or heart of faith they have. It just means that they can assent to conduct the words and the rituals of the church. And so for Luther, the synonym of faith is trust. And that's what he then goes on to explain 
in paragraph three, says, if your faith and trust be right, then is your God also true? And on the other hand, if your trust be false and wrong, then you have not the true God. You know, it's interesting that um, I, I was listening to a, uh, a podcast with uh, Ben Shapiro, as a matter of fact, and he uh, he's uh, Ben Shapiro is uh, is Jewish, and he was talking about uh, about going and talking to Christians about you know what does it mean to be a Christian? What and and I don't recall in his explanation of what he heard coming back from Christians. That trust was was part of the equation. Uh, there was there were some people who said you do right the good things as part of being a Christian. You, there's, uh, there were some people who who answered that you accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, uh, which is a a component of the trust. But the trust that I think Luther is talking about here is a trust in all of God's promises uh, beyond fundamentally the the promise of of Christ, but beyond that, also it's an ongoing trust. Uh, so compared to say to say I believe in Jesus as the Lord and the Savior, and that's true. But Luther's explanation of the first commandment in the large catechism really goes on to describe an ongoing character of trust, not just that I trust something a long ago happened, but now I believe right now it's also making a difference. So the rest of the discussion on the first commandment looks sort of like just an expanding on this on this short paragraph. And and what Luther is getting into is this discussion on trust and how we trust in things outside of God, other than God. And he, he lists three things that we are tempted to trust in. Uh, so he'll describe physical things spiritual things, and the self. And then um, as he introduces these three things, then he'll go into an explanation of what each of these do to pull us away from uh, trusting in God. So the physical things is most clearly identified with the material possessions that can be gained through money and wealth. Um, And you take these things away, do we despair as if we'd been abandoned by God? Uh, And and that, that challenge in that moment of when all is taken away, do we still exist? Do we still have some sort of identity? And he said, you know, if, if everything that you possess of, of skill and prudence and power and favor and friendship and honor um, is taken away, there still remains the true and only God, which has promised to provide for you. But if your trust was in these things, then they have become an idol for you. That connection between money and possessions is not just the mammon, those those things, but then what tools we have to achieve more, um, whether it's learning or wisdom or power, prestige, family and honor. When these become tools to not serve our neighbor, but when they become tools to get more money or get more possessions, then they themselves have become part of the the fabric of having an idol. Yeah, it's it's sort of like if what's going to protect you in in times of need, if you consider you know the the physical things is like the house you live in, um, the, the this these are the things that are almost like the foundation of that the the great learning, the uh, the wisdom, the power, the prestige. That's the foundation for these these other things that 
the the money. And so like if you're if those things, the the physical things, the money gets wiped out, hey, I can always fall back on my education. That's sort of the the, the you know, it's it's not this where we don't fall on God. We don't we don't trust in God's word. We trust in our education. We trust in our our our, our skills. We tr- trust and that's I can always rebuild what I had. If I if I've got ABC, you know, this education or, you know, so it's it's a different it's a corollary to it. But and and he sort of puts that all together in that physical world component, that physical world category. He finishes that section by just saying, therefore, I repeat that the chief explanation of this point is that to have a God is to have something in which the heart entirely trusts. It's that moment where Luther, I think, shows his teaching character that. Uh, he introduces, these are the three things. He describes money and possessions. He describes the foundation. Then he falls back to the, and this is the chief explanation. When you trust in these things, they have become your God. I just appreciate the teaching character of Luther here and how he understands, before I move on to the next thing, I want to be really clear. What I'm talking about is when things distract us away from trusting in God. Then he goes on to the next one. And the next one is the spiritual things. And he now in Luther's time, they they trusted in the saints, praying to the saints. You know, Luther sort of rails against that. And I have many, many, as we've discussed before in this podcast, I have many Catholic friends uh, who would just really throw up a flag there and say, no, 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 we're not praying to the saints. That's not what's happening here. And but without, it certainly seems to be what's happening in the 16th century. Exactly. He describes how if anyone had a toothache, he fasted and honored St. Apollina, who had been macerated his flesh, or voluntary fasting to the honor of St. Apollina. Or if one's afraid of fire, he chooses St. Lawrence as his help. If you dread pestilence, uh, you make a vow to St. Sebastian. Uh, countless number of such abominations where everyone selected his own saint, worshipped him, and called for help to him in distress. For Luther, it's not only his concern about the saints uh, displacing the intercessory work of Christ. I think his graver concern is how people are manufacturing their own gods. That when they have a problem, he says, they select their own saint, they worship their own saint, and they call for that one that they have chosen in their time of distress. I think his concern is not only how the saints displace Christ, but even more how we in our own vanity believe we can construct and choose that which will keep us safe rather than humbly trusting in how God will keep us safe. And Luther spends a little bit of time uh, drawing that line, drawing a line uh, where he says, you know, this is very similar to the ancient pre-Christian era when the pagans would worship Jupiter or Diana or Hercules or or whoever, whatever was according to the inclination of their heart, is what he he says. Uh, if they wanted pleasure, they would they would worship Venus. If they want, if they were pregnant, uh, they would worship Diana and so forth. And and so he sees this the similarity between the way at least the medieval Catholics were using the saints. To the way the pagans used the, uh, uh, the 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 gods, the ancient the ancient gods, um, and I guess one of the things that's that's you know I, I I had a little bit of trouble thinking of how that happens today, you know it, it, yeah I, I don't see a whole lot of 
I guess I'm maybe my my maybe my thinking is a little narrow, but <laughs> not, I haven't gone to church and had anybody, you know. Well, the going. problem still is not. We don't have people erecting images and praying to it. We don't have a situation where King Nebuchadnezzar builds a big statue and every time there's music, people are supposed to bow down and worship it. And we have this great moment of stress. Do I bow down to the statue of King Nebuchadnezzar or do I stay faithful to God? We don't have that situation today. But we have still this challenge where people are constructing something in their own heart self-manufacturing a God that they desire to kind of be their own therapist. And it's still an action primarily that's happening in the heart and that we're pursuing and seeking help and consolation from those things that are not God. Uh, We may have the physical pleasures that are satisfied by house and home and the rest, but then we have the spiritual things that we'll think, um, as long as I've I've got this, I'll be okay. Uh, Yeah, right. it reminds me when I when I was a kid, um, uh, during I grew up in the in the seventies, and I remember my uncle had a a glass uh, pyramid, and he would put this is you know he was sort of new agey, and he would put his his uh, razor blades in the in the glass pyramid, and he would pull them out after a while, and he'd say, ah, they're sharpened, they're magically sharpened by the by the power of the glass pyramid. And and I, uh, huh? Uh, even as a kid, uh, oh, that's uh, that's sort of sort of strange. Yeah, and there is this this temptation to to think that there's like this. I don't know. It, it, it's almost like you know, um, uh, and you know, the '70s was probably the end of it. But you know, there was this period of, you know, the 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 you know, from like the early 20th century to about the 70s was this amazement at radio waves, this amazement of of things traveling through the air that you can't see. And and so there was like this and, and even before that, actually, there you know, in the 19th So should I get century, my tinfoil hat on? <laughs> yeah, you should. <laughs> but, the you know, there was this I mean, if you read the what was happening, the, the discussions on fairies, for example, in the 19th century, there was this this idea that there are powers that we can't see that are at work, these spiritual powers that are at work that and, and that's I mean, uh, the New Age movement still is keeping that alive a little bit. And that, but that's always been a part of at least the American experience, you know, we going back more in a material time now. I think we live more in a, a, a sense of satisfaction by having stuff rather than a spiritual satisfaction or a spiritual imagination. And so I, maybe it, it swings in generations. And that's why in the 70s, there was this great push to uh, build into this kind of new agey, transcendental, mystical stuff. And, and now we're kind of in a generation where people are finding their satisfaction more in stuff. And, and maybe we'll soon have this bounce away from that. So uh, Luther finishes this section off with, so it is with all idolatry. Idolatry does not consist merely of erecting an image and praying to it. It is primarily in the heart, which pursues other things and seeks help and consolation from creatures, saints, or devils. It neither cares for God nor expects good things from him sufficiently to trust that he wants to help nor does it believe that whatever good it receives comes from God. And I thought that was a good summary of that whole, both components of that. So 
with that having been said, let's get into that beer break. So what do we got today? So in our beer break, we have uh, Bell's uh, Brewery from Kalamazoo, Michigan. They're Hazy India Pale Ale, which is called Official. Yeah, and you know it's tempting to call it the official Hazy India Pale Ale, but that's that gets confusing. You know, it, it's it is it's because it's called official. That and, and if you look at it, it's it's like uh, in the old English uh, script. It says official, big big word official just on it. So this is a this is an excellent beer. It has uh, American hops, uh, delicious wheat malt. Uh, from bellsbeer.com, it describes it as a double dry hopped uh, beer with a combination of mosaic, citra, azaca, amarillo, and El Dorado hops. You know, this is actually this is a, a beer that when I first tasted it, I, I thought for sure it had Cascade hops. It has that sort of Cascade sort of after aftertaste, but uh, there's no Cascade in here. This is uh, it's it's a, delicious stuff. Um, I think something that kind of distinguishes it from Two Hearted, uh, which is a, another good beer, is a little bit more of the fruit. Uh, peach, stone fruit, tropical notes are a little bit more in there compared to Two Hearted. And uh, I think it's a pretty good beer. Maybe yeah. a little heavy for the summer? Yeah, I, I'm I'm not a big fan. I like lighter beers uh, and, the, you know, smoother. I should say smoother beers. The 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 you know high hop beers I sort of I sort of file away for the for the summertime and I, I switch over to the lighter beers. Um, but this it's a great way to end our uh, we're getting near the end of the the winter period, and it's a it's a it's a great final beer. Hopefully we'll see. Uh, maybe we'll we'll find our way back to um, sooner than than the fall. But the good way to finish off the winter. It is nice. produced year round by Bells. Uh, now, Bell's, as a brewery, is one of the older craft beers in Michigan. Uh, Larry Bell, back in 1970s, was working with Sarkozy uh, Bakery, and there he kind of learned about yeast and fermentation. Then he opened up uh, his own store that sold stuff for people who wanted to make their beer. And then from there, uh, he started to produce beer Uh and then in 1985, he produced his first commercial beer. It was such a big event in Kalamazoo. Uh, it was the first time in 70 years that beer was being brewed commercially in Kalamazoo. So this is uh, – I, I remember you know, Bell's has been around for a long time. It was one of the first uh, – Bell's and Founders, there's a, there's a handful of those really older uh, Michigan breweries, and Bell's is certainly one of them. Um, and you can tell in a way. I mean, these guys really do come off. Uh, this is they they very professional, consistent. Just, all very consistent. It's it's excellent beer. Almost everything they put out. So, well, that good good choice for the beer. Prost. Prost. We're gonna now continue the three categories of discussion that Luther has uh, talking about things that become idols for us. We looked at physical things. We looked at spiritual things, and the third, uh, and he describes this as the greatest idolatry, is the idolatry of self. And uh, this is the self-righteousness, the, the one who makes himself a god, uh, his own reasoning, his own good works, and uh, 
This is something that Luther spends quite a bit of time discussing in the Heidelberg Disputation and his treatise on good works and the freedom of a Christian, which we've covered in the past in this podcast. Yeah, Luther says that uh, the reasoning behind this one is a little too subtle to be understood by young pupils. So, so he doesn't really spend a whole lot of time on it. This is uh, this is obviously the the uh, the the theology around good works is a is a complex discussion. Um, but and I honestly like the way Evan you you presented in one of your sermons years ago. Uh, you, you, you know, there, you, you mentioned in the sermon that, uh, and I, I still remember this, you said that there's a temptation when, when we repent to simply turn away from our sin. And you said that that just isn't really totally correct because if you turn toward some works righteousness, it says, you know, you find yourself in sin and you turn toward works righteousness. There's a real temptation to do that. And what yeah, you said the is, temptation, Mike, is, uh, you know, I kind of I still remember that sermon as well. I remember even uh, how I moved as I preached the sermon and described if we imagine our movement from wrong to right and the right is now we were wrong in our behavior. and Now we're right in our behavior. Uh, we have not moved anywhere closer to God. Uh, we've only moved closer to our own vanity and that the movement is from being lost to being found instead of right uh, from wrong to right. Yeah, I really liked that. I thought that was a that was a great way to put it. Um, there is this. Uh, uh, we do have a temptation to move from wrong to right, and what we're actually doing is moving wrong to wrong, and uh, uh, and and so to, the only correct answer is to move to Christ, wrong to Christ, and and that's from either end of the spectrum. From from the spectrum of self indulgence to the spec to the other end of the spectrum of of works righteousness, they they both are manifestations of self indulgence, or you know, I, I guess I are manifestations of self uh, glorification or self. I guess self indulgence is I, mm-hmm. I, I, my 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 verb. Hopefully, I'm not confusing anybody here, but that it, it gets like Luther says, it gets complicated very quickly. So. Uh, let, let's so I think repentance, uh, like repentance, is really about turning to Christ. I guess that's that's really the point you were making. And I, I think that's a great way to put it. Um, then Luther spends a little bit of time summarizing uh, his thoughts when he says, "No one, therefore, should presume to take or give anything except as God has commanded it. Uh, we must acknowledge everything as God's gifts and thank Him for them." As this commandment requires, therefore, uh, this way of receiving good through God's creatures is not to be disdained, nor are we arrogantly to seek other ways and means than God has commanded, for that would not be receiving our blessing from God, but seeking them from ourselves. So, so this is actually sort of a, an interesting thing, because this is getting into, I think Luther covered this in the Magnificat, in his, in his, uh, his discussion on the Magnificat, where he, he talked about the importance of accepting good things, but not relying on them. That, that, that's, that's sort of, you know, where we, we, uh, um, you know, we can, we can be, we can, just because you make money, just because you're, let's say, wealthy, doesn't mean you're quote unquote evil or depending on, on your money. You know, there, there's, 
there's, you know, Luther spent a lot of time actually when he was discussing this in the Magnificat, talking specifically to one of the wealthiest men in the world at that time, when he was talking to uh, Frederick the Wise, and saying, you know, no, just keep your focus on Christ, and that is that that is how you, and then use the, what God has given you to glorify Christ. And there's, that is the way to do it. And it's a huge temptation. And Luther says it's a huge temptation. It's very difficult. And we covered that actually, I think, and I forget what episode that was. I think the challenge then is to take every gift we have and see it as something that equips us to serve others rather than equipping us to be secure in our own foundations of money and possessions. What has God provided to me? What dots can I connect in my life that helps show that God is calling me to serve somebody versus what do I have in my life that makes me happier? What do I have in my life that makes me more secure? What do I have in my life that makes me trust? My trust comes from God. And so I don't look to the things that I have to satisfy my trust. I look to God to satisfy my trust. Everything I have is to serve somebody else. So this is pretty deep water. Uh, Luther seems to want to move on rather than get bogged down. So we will too. And uh, then I think that it sort of goes, the next section is this explanation of the appendix to the first commandment. So if the first commandment, we just see kind of basic, uh, you should, I am the Lord, your God, you shall have no other gods. The scriptures then describe how uh, God says, I am the Lord, thy God, strong and jealous, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. And so these words are going to relate to all of the commandments, uh, but they're joined together, especially with this chief commandment that the Lord is the only God that we're to have. So Luther shows the contrast between God's anger to the third and fourth generations versus the blessings for the thousands of generations. And he points out that there are many examples that he could look to. And I guess even in today's uh, world, you can see where, you know, money is squandered. Somebody will be very wealthy. And within three or four generations, you know, the money is squandered. It's gone. And that's all there is to it. Um, and, and But this, this, this comment on uh, showing mercy to many thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments, I guess I've always sort of taken that as being a commentary from, from God uh, about Christ, you know, that, that it's, it's, it's actually, you know, that we are children of God through Christ and that it's thousands of generations from this one man who is, you know, who has, uh, kept his, only one has kept his commandments. Only one has loved him and kept his commandments and our many generations, our thousands of generations that came from that one, uh, is, is the promise that we have here. So then Luther's going to show this uh, with the contrast between Saul and David. So King Saul, a great king, chosen by God, a godly man. But then as he was established on his throne, he let his heart decline away from God and instead put his trust in only his crown and his power. Saul's power only lasted then his generation. It, It didn't remain with his children. Now, David, on the other hand, began poor, despised, and and simple, hunted and chased down by Saul. And throughout his whole life, uh, there were many things that made David flawed. But that which kept from generation to generation, even now through all generations, uh, through King David's descendant Jesus, is this blessing of mercy. 
And that that's the big contrast between Saul and David. What did Saul trust in? Saul trusted in his power. What did David trust? Uh, David ultimately trusted in the mercy of God. Which one of these blessings have lasted through thousands of generations? Uh, Saul's evil ended with him. David's blessing of mercy is still a blessing to all of us. So Luther finishes off and says, Let us therefore learn the first commandment well and realize that God will tolerate no presumption and no trust in any other object. He makes no greater demand of us than a hearty trust in him for all blessings. And that's pretty much it for the first commandment. All right. So we began our discussion with the preface by saying we're going to get through this preface in this episode. Then it took about three four episodes. I appreciate, Mike, at the beginning of this episode, you didn't make too much of our ambition of trying to get through the first command because I thought you might have jinxed us. We just kind of <laughs> went with it and we thought maybe we'll get through the first commandment in one episode, but we kind of let it see where it happened. Uh, we were not jinxed. We successfully got through uh, the first commandment in one episode. Uh, so uh, here ends this episode of Grace on Tap. We appreciate those that support and encourage us. And uh, the feedback we get from people who are listening. Uh, we hope that uh, as long as you're not driving while you're listening or at work while you're listening, that you're able to enjoy a good beer with us and, uh, and prost. Prost. <laughs>